Hello and welcome to Amplify. Music there from composer Alton O'Brien, and we have a conversation with him later in the episode. Yvonne, how are you today? I'm well, Jonathan, thankfully, very well, and uh, looking forward to a sunny bank holiday weekend and exploring places five kilometres from my uh, home. Likewise. So as well as featuring CMC emerging composer Alton O'Brien's work this week, we have a conversation with Ian Wilson on his recent music with a selection of pieces which he's chosen featuring some of his fellow Irish composers. But we begin first with a new work by Jonathan Nangle, written for and performed by clarinetist Deirdre O'Leary for Music Network's Butterfly Sessions. And Yvonne, the Butterfly Sessions is one of many online concert series which is helping to keep the Irish music community going during a time when there are no live concerts. Yeah, I mean, I no, no surprise, I suppose, Jonathan, that Music Network as the national concert promotion organisation, they very quickly organised the, the Butterfly Sessions, a really lovely series and uh, 24 musicians and composers involved to premiere new works in this series in these online performances. And it's featuring a number of CMC composers, Amanda Feary, Judith Ring, Andrew Hamilton, Nick Roth, and as we'll hear today in your chat, with uh, Jonathan Nangle and clarinetist Deirdre O'Leary and uh, all the details all available at uh, musicnetwork.ie And CMC will be starting its own series in June That's right Jonathan we've uh, dusted off our old salon series format which as you know was very successful for us for many years and we're calling this new series New Music Matters and it will start uh, in June and run throughout the summer a series of online discussion and performance events with composers from Ireland and specialist performers. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, having those chats with composers and performers about the works that have been selected across the summer. So you can keep an eye on our website and social media channels for further details and updates on that and when when it starts and and who's involved. So um, let's have a listen to this now. We feature first a conversation with Jonathan Nangle and Deirdre O'Leary, and that's followed by the piece itself, which is called Mandala. I'm Deirdre O'Leary and I play the clarinet and bass clarinet with Crash Ensemble and occasionally with Stargaze and Cassiopeia Wind Quintet. I'm Jonathan Nangle. I'm a composer. I mix a lot of multimedia in with the work that I do. So I often incorporate uh, electronics and elements like that into the work I write. And I also lecture in the Royal Irish Academy of Music in composition and technology as well. 
It was shortly after we went into the lockdown that Deirdre Moynihan contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in taking part in the session. She explained the concept behind the butterfly sessions, uh, you know, this idea of people creating art in their homes and the collaborative nature of it. And also that they really wanted it to be a platform for hope for a kind of calming effect as well so they they dictated a little bit of a brief to us uh, in that they wanted it to appeal to people if we could so the piece is called mandala and it's inspired by mandalas so those kind of you know usually quite kaleidoscopic images you find them in kind of buddhist and hindu religions you find them in new age spirituality you find them in uh you know adult coloring books these days they've they've transcended their original meaning really but it was that kind of idea of this very i kind of suppose kaleidoscopic world so you know one idea that would ripple out and create these kind of ripples of patterns when i contacted deirdre to start talking about the piece i straight away went i have an idea for a piece and delays there's a technology element my idea is to create these like swirling kind of cosmos of clarinets. Let's see if we can do that. Jonathan just made it so easy for me. So first of all, the piece is gorgeous to play. And it was it was so nice because I'm in isolation. You know, it was so nice to have other clarinet players playing with me, you know, which were me, but they were, so they were live. Can't play with anybody at the moment because Zoom and the latency online doesn't let you, you know, line up. Uh, first, I had to establish whether Deirdre had either a computer or a smartphone that she could use. So I built her a pure data patch. And then I made a YouTube video that explained how to install it and how to use it. We did a Zoom call where I uh, helped her install it and worked through it as well and got her up and running on that. And then Deirdre then took that away and started to use it. And then it really down the line, when it got to the point where we were about to record the piece, we kind of had conversations about how we could do that. We were extremely lucky. Uh, Deirdre had her, her DPA microphone and was able to borrow a Zoom recorder. So in the performance, she's using the delay patch and reacting to that delay patch. And then that recording she sent to me and then I added the delays in post-processing in a kind of clean way. To be my own sound engineer and like even it was video, which I love about these all these coronavirus era recordings. It's really nice that they're video because we're so distant from one another. It's Jonathan made it really easy for my old Mac to, to work with. But yeah, being my own sound engineer, it was even down to like, I did, I remember to press record on this as well as on this. And did I remember to um, do I need to change the batteries now and you know, yeah, I don't have to do any of that stuff usually. In previous times, I would have loved to hop on a train and head down to to Deirdre to rehearse with her. Uh, and you would have thought nothing about that. You know, I would have done it because, you know, you want to do it in person because that's, you know, that's the kind of situation we're in. But, you know, I would actually now be far more open to being to doing this kind of thing remotely like this with somebody who potentially you might not be able to go and see and, and work with. And, and it's worked surprisingly well, being able to do it like this and work in this kind of situation. Like what Jonathan did there in, in writing a piece where, where I was surrounded by other clarinet players, which were me. And, but it was live, you know, uh, but on a delay. It was just so comforting, I think. You know, it's really comforting to just play. And um, yeah, so I think there'll be a, a lot of focus on that kind of thing. Um, how to recreate the feeling of people playing together at the same time while actually not being able to do that. The the whole thing of ha having people um, be able to see into your house and, and you be, uh, you know, it's very intimate. It's much more intimate than, um, you know, tales in a, in a concert hall. 
think there'll also be more um just more awareness of what it means to be live you know what it means to be playing in the same room as your audience and the other performers i think that that will become something that's really precious and really everybody is so aware of what's possible when you're doing that and what's possible when you're when you're just online Thank you. 
Mandala by Jonathan Nangle, performed by Deirdre O'Leary. Next, composer Ian Wilson. In our conversation, which was recorded earlier in the week, he talks about some of the recent work and taking inspiration from the environment and politics, as well as his composing career up to this point. He also selects five Irish pieces towards the end of our conversation, and he talks about these and why he has chosen them. I began by asking him how he was managing during the current pandemic. I mean, I know this is really a terrible time for many, many people, and I don't want to diminish that in any way. To be free of all the, the clatter and the clutter that normally surrounds you has been very liberating in a way. I've been able to keep working. We were self-isolating my partner and myself and their dog with her parents deep in the countryside for a couple of months. It was just really lovely to not feel the pressure of having to do this by this time, to do that. Like I say, I'm really, really cognizant that this is a horrible time for many people. And just to be free of the normal stresses has been quite healthy, actually. And do you find that composing is different as a result of that? It's hard to judge because... The piece I've been working on, I was trying something different anyway. Uh, I was working on a violin and piano duo, 20-minute piece. This was the first piece I've written at the piano for many years, actually. I moved away from working at the piano 15 years ago, maybe. You know, when you work at the piano, your hands do naturally fall into familiar shapes. And I wanted to get away from that possibility of creating too many familiar sounds for myself. I mean, for me, really, the composing is a constant series of explorations. So I'm never really interested in repeating myself. Even if something turns out great, as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't want to necessarily pursue that very far because then I, I feel like I've explored that particular avenue and then it's, it's on to the next thing to explore. So over the last 15 years or so, I've been introducing a lot of different elements into not the composing process, but the inspiration or who I'm working with. I've been doing a lot of public art projects. I've been doing a lot of projects which involve improvisers or musicians from different backgrounds. The whole collaborative aspect of composing can push you in many different directions and sometimes it takes a long time to explore the ramifications of all those collaborations to find out what's worth hanging on to what's worth 
exploring further what doesn't work. So th- things change in terms of what I do, not necessarily so much in how I do it. It can be a very solitary existence if you don't work closely with other people, either before or during the the composition process. You know, I've been a professional composer for, for 30 years now. I was trying to divide it into sections, but it doesn't really fall neatly. But certainly the first 12, 14 years felt very, I don't want to say easy, because there, there was a lot of hard work involved, but it, it didn't feel that there was any block on being able to write, on finding inspiration, on particularly on following a path, let's say. And that path was was quite easy to follow. I could see it out in front of me. I felt like I was trying to, especially in the 90s, trying to add to my, to the way I could deal with this or that element. I I could see what elements I was lacking in, for instance, and those are the things then I would identify and I would try and work on those, whether it was the idea of melody or harmony, all all these old-fashioned ideas about what goes into a piece of music. And then, you know, in the middle of the noughties, things just exploded in many different directions for me. And I I have since then been exploring ideas around collaboration, improvisation, sound art, noise, taking inspiration from all sorts of places. And I suppose then the next 15 years up to now have been much more exploratory and also in the same way, a feeling that I don't have such a clear direction of of where I'm I'm heading and I'm not sure if I'm looking for one things in a way feel very much open ended as to what kind of composer I am but at the same time everything I've done still feels very much like it's been a part of me It's interesting to hear you describe the trajectory of your composing career, if I can put it that way, in 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 those terms. Was this a kind of a conscious um, decision by you to kind of to evolve musically in the way that you did? I don't think it's something that I necessarily went looking for. A few things happened in the middle of the noughties. I got involved in my first public art projects. I began to work with Cahal Roach. The possibilities seemed to open up in front of me for doing different kind of things. I was just in a position to, to want to take them and to be able to take them as well. It's just been a constant process of expansion, I think, since then. 
I don't know if that will continue or if at some point I might have to rein things in again. But, you know, working with other artists, other musicians has been one of the big joys of being a composer. And I don't see why I would do without that. I suppose every so often you have to take stock of what you've done. And you look back over a period of two, three, five years and, and look at the work that you've completed. And you have to start thinking maybe, well, what's what's good here? What's worked here? And what's worth pursuing again in the future? And would you see this current period as an opportunity to take stock? Or is this something that you're always doing? You're always evaluating um, the next next step? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Actually, despite what I said earlier about this period, I have been busy, not necessarily in the same way. You know, normally pre-COVID, especially with the number of public art projects I had on in the last couple of years, you'd be constantly driving somewhere for a meeting to talk to someone, to interview someone, to scope out this or that performance space. And then there's constant meetings. You know, you're, you end up driving two or three hundred miles a week, that kind of thing. And all that kind of stuff can be really exhausting uh, and it's constant. So one of the things I've been trying to do the last couple of years is to do much less of that and to try and focus much more on just composing and trying to do work every day as much as possible. Because when you when you have that other kind of routine, then you maybe compose on a Monday, you're out on a Tuesday and a Wednesday doing other work, you maybe get some time on a Thursday. And it's just, it's very frustrating actually, but that's it's what you often have to do to to make a living. You know, being being an artist or a composer, it, it shouldn't be like being a, a merchant banker where you're you're constantly up against deadlines and under pressure, but that's what it turns out to be for, for many, many people. where the economy is the most important thing. Uh, the economy, capitally, what this abstract notion of continuous growth, I mean, this kind of attitude just feeds into this, this notion that we are there somehow to serve this thing, which is the economy, that there's always something bigger than ourselves and we're supposed to feel somehow that, that this is our nature, that this thing has to be fed without wanting to come off as a raging lefty here, because I'm really not, but you, you know, it's very clear from all the figures that there's a very small percentage of people just, you know, getting the benefit while everybody else works themselves to death. And even during COVID, the figures come in that the very, very wealthy are still somehow managing to increase their wealth during the pandemic, while everybody else has to sit at home and self-isolate and not be able to work. The whole thing's upside down. Some of the, the the recent pieces that you've composed uh, over the last three years have addressed some pretty big themes, like the environment, the 
current geopolitical situation. Um, that's a relatively new thing that you've uh, started doing in your music. That your music directly confronts some of these big issues like climate change, like the current uh, political situation in America and so forth. Well, yes, uh, it's true, but these are such confrontational in- issues now. I mean, they're, they're right in front of us all the time. I mean, there are, there are different ways to respond to that, of course. The idea of creating art which is beautiful and allows us to escape from the pressures of, of everyday life is, is extremely valid. But I think also that many artists want to respond to what's around them. I think that's also equally valid. And the way to do it, I suppose, from my own point of view, is, is not to be hectoring or overly didactic about it, but to, to try and find some way to express how I feel about it in a way that maybe other people can recognize and understand. I did, for instance, a, a piece called Denier, which was written for the Ortus Festival. I'd offered to write them a piece because I was really enjoying what their festival was doing. And this had been on my mind anyway, what was going on with in America, in, in other parts of the world, you know, Hungary, Brazil, where you have people in charge who, who seem to be able to bring out the worst in, in both themselves and in other people. You see constantly big rallies being held and I could never get on board with that at any stage of my life that I I could somehow be part part of a crowd which is going nuts for what some guy on the stage is saying. It just always seemed so weird to me, you know. So I wanted to try and recreate that that idea in music where, where you would have this central figure trying to whip up the the crowd into a frenzy and that's what you know the flautist and the, the string quartet do together I wrote this other piece for the hard rain ensemble um, shortly after that with a very long title the emptiness of the ever-expanding universe cannot compare to the void where your heart should be, for instance. It was basically inspired by what was happening in, in the North, you know, and again, we have broken promises and blah, 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 and it's just all so hollow and it frustrates the hell out of me. So I, I tried to create something in music which would be uh, some corollary to the idea of emptiness. But do you think that there could be a danger when you're writing a piece with a political message that, um, I'd, and I don't mean you, I mean if a, a composer is writing a piece that has a political message that somehow, that the music becomes somehow overshadowed by the message itself? Well, I, I think that's a danger if you don't do it well. 
There's also a difference, I think, between trying to reflect what's going on around us, which is really what I'm interested in, as opposed to pushing a particular message. And I'm, I'm not so interested in the latter. I mean, I think there have been some composers who are interested in pushing an agenda. And that can work to better or, or worse degrees, depending on how, how good a composer they are. For these pieces, which are still very much at the heart of my compositional work, they absolutely have to function as pieces of music first and foremost. And the inspiration behind them then is what's driving them. And how much of that comes across without the program note is probably minimal, of course. So that's always the danger. If you don't have a text, you're never going to be able to get your idea or message clearly across. But even in that instance, it still has to work as a piece of music, first and foremost. Your most recent piece um, in that set of uh, pieces that are based on uh, political issues and environmental issues is the piece Species Counterpoint. And that work was written for two saxophonists whom you've worked with quite closely. And it also includes uh, field recordings that you've made. Uh, tell me about that piece and how all that mix of things uh, came about. Well, the, the environmental thing came out of a project I did in Leash three or four years ago. I mean, I'd done projects in the past where I interviewed people uh, about a particular subject, maybe people from a particular place. And I would find ways to work that interview material or elements of it back into the piece and have music built around that so that the music and maybe some recorded text would all go together to create something which lies between audio documentary and concert work. So with this project in Leash, I, I interviewed a lot of people whose lives or work in some way connected with pollinators, specifically bees, but also other insects who do that kind of thing. But for Sligo, I, I decided that maybe I'll do a piece without text this time. I still talked and interviewed to a lot of people to get information and to be informed. But in the end, I decided that the most important thing was to try and reflect what I'd learned musically. So again, I, I made a soundtrack, very lovely natural elements, bird songs, waterfalls. And as that soundtrack goes on, it's, I started to manipulate and process some of the sounds. So you can hear how things change and they warp. I suppose the implication is that things are happening to the environment that uh, we are the cause of. I wrote a score for Thies Melema, who's a Dutch saxophonist I've worked with a lot over 20 years and Cahill Roach again who's a very good friend of mine like Thies who I've worked with a lot as well and they, they'd never worked together but they knew of each other of course because of the work I was doing with each. I wanted this clash of musical types I had a very tightly scored element for Thies and then I just wanted Cahill to respond very freely to that Thank you. 
suppose with a piece like this, it's really up to the audience to, to decide what they're actually hearing and, and what it means. I've always known that you can never really make uh, an audience understand what's behind a piece of music. You know, you can read something, you can write something, but really at the same time, you want them to experience it purely as a piece of music. So there's a lot of messiness along the line there between inspiration, the, the outcome, what you hope the audience might get from it, what the audience will actually get from it. But, you know, you, you just have to put as much into the music as you can and you hope that some element of what you're interested in, what you're feeling when you're making the piece gets across to the listener. I think the most important thing is that is how I feel about the music, whether I feel it's worked. And some pieces can take me many years to really come to a definitive feeling about. You know, so the piece you're talking about, Species Counterpoint, that's that's not even a year old yet. And it's, I think it'll take me quite a while to work out what I really feel about that piece. I do feel positively about it, but I couldn't tell you where it, where it lies in my affections at this stage. And are there particularly special pieces that you've written over the course of your composing career that stand out especially for you over others definitely definitely yeah my first proper orchestral piece the first one i wrote after being a student i remember trying to start it six times before i was happy with with where it was going and it was played quite a lot you know the Ulster orchestra played it quite a lot some other orchestras but I remember getting a tip from the BBC of, I think it was the first performance. And I just played it on a loop when I was driving in the car. I was so, I was so thrilled with myself <laughs> for having written um, a piece of music which I felt, you know, worked on the levels that I had hoped it would. The point is to create something I think that you can be happy with on some level. So I, there are a handful of pieces like that. That's Rise, isn't it? That one is Rise. But, you know, the, the piano concerto I wrote for Hugh Tinney and the Irish Chamber Orchestra, Limina, that's maybe one of the best pieces I, I ever wrote, and that was well over 20 years ago. I just happened to get an idea, a certain approach to writing for the piano, a certain way to build the strings around that, and it's magically came together. You know, some pieces you can go back to and you can see the flaws and you can think, well, I would maybe do that differently if I was doing that now. But 
I was never a revisionist. I never wanted to go back because I think your ideas can change over time. You know, what you feel now, you might feel differently in 10 years. So something mean, you would have to go back again and, and fix it again in the light of your older self. So I, I never got involved in that kind of thing. I look in those pieces, all of the pieces I wrote, like a trail of breadcrumbs through my life. And I can look at any one piece and I have a sense of where I was at that time, what was going on in my life, what I was doing. They're like signposts in a way. So it, it's a very personal diary, I suppose, of a, of a life. So I've asked you to put together a selection of works by Irish composers that are important to you or that interests you in some way. Perhaps you might introduce these and tell me why you have chosen each of them. Uh, well, in no particular order. I, I've chosen um, Gráinne Mulvey's Akanos. I've known Gráinne for nearly, well, well over 25 years anyway. One of the things that interests me about Grania is she is the sweetest, nicest person in, in, in the most positive of ways. She's, she's an absolutely lovely person. And yet the music that she writes is uh, so ferocious. The best of her music to me is the best of Irish music, really. When she hits her top form, she's absolutely amazing. And this piece, Akonos, is a really good example of that. It's, it's just... Uh, absolutely thrilling orchestral ride. It's unashamedly modernist in its intentions and its conceptions. I can't tell you how much I value that holding on to ideals of of challenge, of confrontation, of the viscerality of sound. These are things I, I value highly in music. Okay, so the next piece? I've picked a piece by the young Northern Irish composer Anson MacDonald. It's a Welsh title. It's a guitar piece, solo guitar piece. Yeah. And I think it, it means something along the lines of longing for heaven. I only met Anson just over a year ago. He'd been one of the composers played at uh, the Dublin New Music Festival 2019 during the, um, the Crash Ensembles Free State. And his piece was a standout piece for me. And I was delighted because he was a young Northern Irish composer with great ideas, a lot of confidence in what he's doing musically. And so we've kept in touch. So Chris Roberts, uh, the Welsh guitarist, or he's English, but lives yeah. in Wales, had, had uh, commissioned this piece from Anselm. And it's supposed to be inspired by Welsh harp music. And the opening 30 seconds, I swear to God, if you didn't know it was a guitar, you would think it was a harp. And Anselm's also a guitarist, and he writes so well for the guitar. But beyond that, it's such an original approach musically that I was I was really taken with it I think he's he's a real talent and I'm delighted that he's a compatriot as well as a colleague
Third one is a piece by Deidre McKay. Deidre would be one of my other favorite composers. I've always liked her music. There's something very superficially, I don't want to say simple, but clear about it. And yet I know that she works really hard at it. And I know that clarity doesn't come without a lot of work. Um, and this is a piano piece from the early 90s called Time Shining, which she actually wrote for me. At that time, I was still playing piano a lot, doing a lot of performances. This was a piece that I really enjoyed playing because it had these lovely crystalline textures. She was still in her 20s when she wrote this, so it's quite an early piece for her. And I think it's also a little different of what mature Deidre McKay music is like. There's something a little more exploratory about this particular piece. It's just an absolutely beautiful piece of music. I always enjoyed playing it. And uh, she has a very nice recording by Andrew Zulinski on her SoundCloud page, and it's a lovely performance. I've chosen an album called As the Quiet Crow Flies. And this was a collaboration between the Cork-based sound art duo, The Quiet Club, and my own improvising duo with Cahill Roach, which was called Crow. I was touring Ireland with uh, The Last Siren, which was a piece for improvising singer and two sound artists just back in 2015. And it was around the time where one of those huge storms was coming. And we had a performance in Sligo lined up. The singer, Lauren Kinsella, was supposed to come from London. And I just had an inkling that she would be stranded there or not be able to get over because of the, uh, because of the storm. And right enough, I mean, the day we drove up, you know, from, from Cork to Sligo, there were floods everywhere. And I had, because Cahill lives in that area, I had asked if he was free that night because rather than waste our time with a, a completely empty night, I thought we might, uh, we might jam together, him and me and the Quiet Club. So that's what ended up happening. We got the model to let us use their, their sound engineer and sound gear, and we just jammed for an hour or two. It was a fabulous experience because, you know, I was just dabbling in improv at that stage, and to be surrounded by three guys who do it all the time, really educational. I learned so much just from those two hours. The, the recording turned out so well that we edited it down to um, a 30, 35 minute track. Farpoint Records agreed to release it. And it's, it's really still one of the favorite things I've done actually as a performer, but also just as a, as a musician. final piece is a piece by Greg Caffrey, uh, another compatriot and someone I've got to know quite well over the last seven or eight years. 
Now Greg's doing amazing things up there with, with the Hard Rain Ensemble. He's a really interesting composer, I think. He's a set of interests which are distinct from many other composers. I think there's a certain Frenchness in the way he approaches his writing, but also he has a very strong interest in Takemitsu and some other Japanese music. So you get these twin things of French and Japanese sensibilities married with a Northern Irish... Is there a Northern Irish directness of expression? I don't know. It's a combination of elements which uh, is really interesting. One of my favourite pieces of his from, from the last couple of years is called Environments One, which is a really good old-fashioned modernist title. But it's actually a piece for piano and orchestra, which uh, Finian Collins and the Ulster Orchestra played. It's a bit more abstract, I think, than some of the other music that he's been writing. I like how he writes with the piano, I like what he does with the orchestra here, I like how he makes them work together. It's sitting on this, to the side of, of what we might consider mainstream Irish music, and I think that anything that sits on the side of our mainstream Irish music is a, is a good thing. Greg Caffrey's Environments One, performed by Finneen Collins and the Ulster Orchestra, ending that conversation with composer Ian Wilson. For details on all the recordings used in this episode, check out the show notes for the podcast, cmc.ie forward slash amplify. Finally, we have composer Alton O'Brien. And Yvonne, this is the second of two features on our current CMC Emerging Composers. Yeah, we heard from Anya Malin last week, Jonathan, in that uh, interesting interview that uh, you did with her from her uh, current home in Manchester. And this week we hear from Alton and Alton is such an engaging character, performer and composer. And as he says in the interview with you, drawing from traditional music and from classical music, because he's trained and engaged in both of the traditions. And uh, I I found his interview very interesting, his insights about uh, the different aspects of the two worlds, traditional music and, and classical music. And with the CMC Emerging Composer programme, we'll be devising various supports for Alton and Anya across the year of 2020 and into 2021. My name is Alton O'Brien and I'm a composer and fiddle player. I started playing traditional music when I was seven, actually with a school teacher, Dennis Liddy at the time. I started playing classical as well, mainly to be honest, to, to explore more techniques and everything with the violin and the instrument itself. I think that was the initial interest in, in other music, world music, folk music and everything else. 
Um, but I was composing right from the start, I think. I was, I was writing little tunes. It was always based on the fiddle, more kind of improvising and then trying to put a structure on things. But I'd always been interested in it. And um, I, was, I probably kept it a bit of a secret because I was playing and learning the tradition and the traditional music. But um, writing away on the sly. <laughs> but I do, I do remember that that teacher once said I played one of the tunes and he said, that's very good. And I think that was when I decided I'd stick with it. <laughs> At what point did you begin to combine those two worlds? So I was definitely playing traditional music for a couple of years, but I wasn't really thinking of it as traditional music. It was just music. We were just learning. That's just what we were learning. They were never too separate in my own head. And even with a lot of um, contemporary music practice, there's always a go between the, especially in Ireland where so many people do play traditional music and kind of bridge over to the, the classical world as well. There's a lot of crossover in mentality as well. Now I might get shot for this one, but when I was trying to, because I've always been trying to compare then the whole classical and traditional thing, even though they're often not that separate. But at one point I'd boiled it down to classical music being more about the ego of the composer and traditional music more about the ego of the performer. Because just for the simple fact that even if you went to a concert, a lot of the time people would attend to hear Beethoven Fifth Symphony, for example. And you'd have your favorite performer, your favorite orchestra, but you'd be there for that piece of music to be performed. Whereas if you take like one of the most famous traditional musicians at the moment playing today, like Martin Hayes or someone, people would go to see him. And I don't know that people would be asking for requests either. You know, they'd be there to see whatever he wants to do. And uh, for that reason, I always thought that was the main difference. But for me then, never cared too much about the differences. It was literally about wanting to spend more time with the instrument itself, the violin, one that's found in probably every musical tradition known to us now, or a lot of them anyway, even from jazz to... Do you know what? I remember hearing about the either Brazilian or Portuguese habeca, that instrument. And mm. then that's when I was thinking, Jesus, there's fiddles everywhere. As far as traditional and classical go, you know, there was people saying it, but... To a child who doesn't care anyway, <laughs> it means very little. What's your current situation? Where are you based and what are you working at? Up in Dublin at the moment. I've been living here for a good few years. But I, I always loved Dublin though because my father's from here. So he used to come up all the time. Back then though, it took nearly four or five hours, I'd say, to drive it. It's a quick one now back home to Clare. I'd say even quicker these days when nobody on the roads. <laughs> but, um, well, no, yeah. you're, 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 you're leaving out the, the guard of checkpoints now. That no, that's true. Do, yeah, so, it's yeah. it's down. And they probably turn you around as well. Yeah. <laughs> Back from whence he came. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah. well, yeah, the most recent accomplishment now is that the West Cork Chamber Music Festival had entered a string quartet and got a prize for it. A, a winning composition just 
that was great news just a couple of weeks ago which to be honest is great motivation for this the whole period as well because I, I know the first couple of weeks of the isolation are I was so motivated and so creative and everything was a creative opportunity and wow look I've composed another piece <laughs> and slowly that wanes as you can imagine um but it was nice to get that it's morale boost and also just motivation to to move on to something else it kind of gives a bit of closure to a piece, which is a funny thing. And it's a project that's now finished and you move on. So tell me about the work. There's woods at home called Bally Griffey Woods. And every time I'd go back to Clare, we're, I was always going into them. So I wanted to structure this piece like, I was calling it earlier, a sonic narrative. I usually do that, I think, composing as well. I have some sort of sequence of images or, or series of images in my mind. And yet for the end result, I don't, it doesn't really matter. It's not trying to tell a certain story, but, but this one was just going through those woods when it's about to get dark and all the changing scenes and scenery and getting scared of the shadows and the sounds. So it's just in the woods at night in a quilt it's called. It was firstly based on a, a sort of a tune I wrote earlier in the year. Not exactly traditional, but in that, in more that kind of style, I just wanted to develop that out and bring it into other strings as well. So in that, I saw the opportunity to write for string quartet and I used that then. But actually the melody, the main melody of it is now completely gone as well, which is a funny thing that happens. It's funny the new life it takes on. Are you still actively composing or have you found that you're you're able to be creative during this time? I was saying with that with that string quartet coming in there, there's definitely a good boost for it because it's taken a break the last while now. But just before the, the lockdown, I'd, I would say the first real sort of solo show where I wrote and performed it. And um, out of that launched this thing called the Bed Tea Company, along with my brother here too. And it was... At the moment, it's an outlet for compositions. So trying to get that off its feet in some way has been, it was really the perfect time because then it just went into isolation. And I was like, this is really what I wanted to work on for a while. Because I was playing different groups and bands and still am, but all of the rehearsals and things like that take up a lot of time. And then it was really, really nice to just spend the first two weeks solidly writing new music for it. A lot of electronic stuff, but a lot of fiddle and viola music as well. A lot of music for another performer. I often work with Paul Rowe, the clarinet player. He'll be recording on it as well. His voice was actually used for the, the show, along with others. So I've, I've kind of completed a little section on that now. <laughs> so now I don't know what, what's coming next. I know all the festivals over summer and all the work, that's all been postponed, which is a better word than cancelled. Um, yeah. So there's just to see where to get the inspiration from next because there was always a lot of travel involved and a lot of moving around it is a good time for for creativity too and i think do you miss that travel and moving around and you know to different festivals and doing different yeah. gigs and 
I do. I, I miss what it does to your mind. I think. It, I think you need a, You do need a good period of quiet and maybe reflection afterwards, um, when you're doing a lot of that. But, but it does kind of fire things off in your mind and and keep you going, not consciously, of course, but it just it keeps things interesting, and you never know who you're going to meet or talk to that will change your mind completely. Alton O'Brien. That's all for this week. My thanks to Keith Fennell for his production and editing support. We'll be back again in about two weeks with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening.